Welcome back to The Couple. Tonight I'm joined by Mark Nelson, trained as a nuclear engineer, here to talk about the nuclear safety situation in Ukraine tonight. Mark, welcome back to The Couple. Thanks, Chris. It's a uh, pretty somber occasion. Feels like we're heading up on about 20 hours of uh, the next chapter, really, in, in history. You've been doing some really interesting analysis following what's what's happening in Ukraine with special attention to the grid and its nuclear stations. And as you've said on Twitter, these are unprecedented times. Um, this is the first time in world history that operating and non-operating nuclear plants have been captured in a time of war. Is, is that correct? Uh, yes. I mean, there have been there have been nuclear plants either unconstruction, under construction that have been attacked during war. For example, um, in Iran, uh, an under construction nuclear plant was attacked. Um, but also we've had non-civilian nuclear plants like military reactors and research reactors be attacked. But this is this is new. So walk, walk us through what's going on on the ground right now. Uh, sure. Well, let's. There are two different things to talk about here. One is the condition of the nuclear plant site at Chernobyl. So, former nuclear plant. There is no nuclear reactions going on right now in any reactor cores. The site has been decommissioned since uh, 1999. At the end of 1999, Chernobyl nuclear plant was shut down. Uh, the Ukrainian government uh, worked out a deal where they would shut down Chernobyl plant, which had been in service since the accident in 1986 and they would shut it down and get money to complete uh, another plant of a different design so they were trying to replace like with like they were still reluctant to shut down the nuclear plant but they were under a lot of pressure from europe so chernobyl is one issue that's a, you could say a dead nuclear site and then we've got the online plants the four plants that are in other parts of the country that are currently online i mean I say currently with a situation like this, I stop to record a video with you. Stuff may change. Uh, right, so right. we run the risk of, of by the time you get this out, something may have changed. But the last time I checked, the four nuclear plants were up and running. And as demand is going down on the Ukrainian grid because of the disruption of war, those four plants seem to be load matching a little bit and decreasing their operation. But um, right. for most of today, that's uh, February 24th, for most of today, the nuclear plants were providing something like 70, 75% of Ukrainian electricity. Wow. And that's going to be a different issue from Chernobyl because those plants are operating, nuclear reactions are going on, pressure vessels are high temperature and, um, you know, filled with hot water. So that makes a different situation than Chernobyl. But I think we should talk about both. The vast majority of what we're going to see on the internet, a lot of the posts that I've been responding to have been about Chernobyl, even though there, we have actual operating nuclear plants in a country at war where connection to the grid is safety relevant. And it's just really interesting, Chris, what catches people's attention during this time. And the attention just keeps going back to Chernobyl when you would think that if nuclear safety is the concern here, that really nuclear safety, people should really be paying attention to operating nuclear plants in a, in a war zone. Is there any part of, you know, psychological operations that's determining the Russian activity at Chernobyl? Or is this just simply a way to get around a swamp and, and get into Ukraine? I We're now immediately into speculating. I think we should probably stay in nuclear safety, but to not leave that without an answer. I doubt that anything weird is going on, at least from the Russian side. Um, it does appear that Russia has control of the site. It's directly on the path through the Pripyat uh, March 
marches on the way on the road to Kiev from the from the north from the northern border so it's it's like not it's something you would have gone through anyway and uh so i don't i don't think there's anything from the russian side the russians appear to be holding it i've seen some reports i haven't seen it confirmed that uh artillery shell may have hit one of the facilities there perhaps some of the spent fuel storage areas from the operation of the plant that's something different than the reactor four that had the meltdown and the explosion and the sarcophagus and the the outer containment so that appears to be happening the very first notes i saw about chernobyl um earlier today were i didn't really like the tone but i i don't want to critique people in a time of war when your country's under attack but it was like we're you know chernobyl is dangerous and we're about to lose and it's going to blow up and all that stuff which doesn't make a lot of sense, but uh, I think almost anything is forgivable if you're the country under attack in the time of war. But I don't think Russia's done anything intentional. And uh, we can discuss what that means from a, um, a radiation perspective. What the... So what we've seen is that in recent hours, radiations on gamma ray sensors, so gamma radiation is one of the types of radiation that is uh, high energy rays, sort of like x-rays but with a little more more zip to them gamma rays uh are what you would use at the dentist to take photos x-ray photos of teeth right okay so gamma rays you can build detectors for and there's a network a big network of detectors all around chernobyl it's one of the things that lets people know it's safe for tourism it's a very popular tourist site now so the gamma ray network seems to have reported a spike starting several hours ago What is this spike? Well, we need to put it in context with radiation measurements. Now, anytime there's a spike, you have to be ready for if that radiation detection goes goes on, you might see a higher value. But for the moment, we can look and see what the most intense spike is right next to, appears to be in a sensor right next to the containment of reactor four. It's reading at the moment 65,000 nano sieverts per hour what is a sievert it's a unit of dosage of radiation um we won't get too much into the different dose types let's just say it's sixty-five thousand nano sieverts per hour what that is is 65 micro sieverts per hour or 0.065 millisieverts sure. per hour what that means is it's comparable each hour in that one hot spot that uh, seems to be about 10 times higher than other nearby sensors. It means that that sensor uh, seems to be reading a dosage that's about the same as a transatlantic flight dosage to uh, passengers or uh, crew. Now, of course, a transatlantic flight is between six and 10 hours. So that's, it's, not, it's not nothing, but it's something we should watch. It's just a smaller issue than, you know, if you're site staff and you got occupied because your country's at war, that's it's more important. So there are elevated readings. The dosages are not very high and the spike is in a very specific location. We will keep watching it, but uh, the, this is not something where even if you dispersed a ton of material if you like intentional attacks somehow exactly hitting spent nuclear fuel and if somebody tried to i don't know retribution or something that tried to get into containment and blow something up 
let's just ignore why that would happen or who would be asked and actually carry that out with it being the most famous radiological site on planet Earth. But let's say they did. Then you would have a <laughs> the best pre prepared radiological site on planet Earth besides Fukushima Daiichi in Japan to detect and determine what type of radiation is where and how to clean it up, how to address it. Uh, so I guess you could say we're prepared if something weird does get done to the site, we're ready to take a look. But uh, this is a relatively small problem compared to the days and even years after the accident itself when Chernobyl served as an active work site, not just for the cleanup, but for the operating plant. So I think it's pretty safe to say Chernobyl is not our concern here for radiological hazards. It's a concern for the occupational hazards of either being taken over by a foreign occupier if you're a site worker or if you're a site, you're an occupier and that comes under shelling of if forces repulse the attack and drive the Russian forces back north to the border. And just clarify one more thing for me as well. I mean, this is nuclear material from the accident. It's been sitting there for almost 40 years. Careful, we don't, uh, nuclear material from the accident is not necessarily what some reports are saying was hit. That would be spent fuel from the operating power plant. The power plant operated for about uh, 20 years. And so it, it had spent yeah. fuel that had to be taken out and cooled and stored. These would be the types of things that were in, you know, the thick, sturdy canisters, um, small amounts of slightly radioactive fission product gases could build up. And depending on how it was damaged, some heavier isotopes may have escaped, but again, there's a lot of, there's a game of, uh, is a, there's a fog of war right now. We don't know right, for sure. Right. It's just according to these readings, the health issue is for the people on the site and it's that it's a war zone, not the radiation. Yeah. I don't think there's any point in, in speculating a lot more, uh, but good, good to get that cleared up and get a bit of an accurate picture of what is happening as of 15 minutes ago. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> rapidly changing situation. Should we pivot to uh, the operating nuclear plants? Yeah, let's do it. In fact, um, you know, we're this is a weird, weird time, Chris. I, we said it at the start. Let's say it again. We're watching live data from the grid, from the electricity grid that uh, has not been targeted. It has not apparently been bombed or cut off or clipped. It's not clear whether that situation will stay if one side or another feels they're losing and they want to go scorched earth, it's not clear what it means that the grid is still on, even though one country has been invaded by another. I can't say that I can make a lot of a lot of sense out of it, but that's the situation we have. Why am I concerned about that grid going off? Besides the fact that the electricity working or not matters a lot as a humanitarian situation for a country of tens of millions of people, it matters because... Connection to the grid is what allows a nuclear plant to function normally and to be assured of safety. So just as an example, at Fukushima Daiichi, you had a plant with a way too low seawall be hit by the shockwaves from an earthquake that shut the plant off, shut the reactors off as much as we could tell. Automatic cooling systems started cooling the reactor. Then the the wave hit and uh, wiped out what was left of the grid. The plant is disconnected from outside power. Their backup generators, big diesel generators were flooded. They were in too low. That led to a lack of ability to keep the 
uh, still hot, decaying. I mean, the heat was decaying once you turn off a reactor. Immediately, it goes from 100% power, if that's where you were, to about 5%. That 5% declines hourly, declines every moment, but hour by hour until um, within a few days, you're at a very, very tiny fraction of original heat in the reactor core, but you still got to cool it or it can start to melt. What happened in Fukushima is that they they lost the ability to cool it and the the cores of several of the reactors melted. The the violent visuals are going to be something that's it's it's not probably something that can happen in these reactors because uh, different type of reactor, different type of containment handled uh, differently. So what do I mean by handled differently? Well, every nuclear plant in Ukraine knows that there's a war on. They know why they're up and when they need to shut down. They will be ready for this situation. It's even if something immediately shuts off the grid or say rockets start attacking the nuclear plant, shut off is going to happen. That would happen, right? Then it's the response time. Does the core stay cooled? Does water keep circulating through the core, even though the reactors have shut off, the control rods have dropped, the reaction has stopped? Still in the fuel, there's still some heat from a little bit of delayed uh, delayed uh, neutrons in the reactor and also then uh, for a much longer period, just the various isotopes continuing to break down over time. What you're describing at, at Fukushima is this, I guess, so-called uh, total station blackout when there's there's no power from, coming from the grid. Um, and in, in their case, their backup power wasn't there. I guess their batteries ran the cooling for a little while and then there was nothing. Were there post-Fukushima upgrades made, I guess, at plants around the world to like this question of a, of a, of a total station blackout became uh, something that was considered, I think, around the world. Were adjustments made to make sure there's a resilient backup in place in, in case the grid goes down in Ukraine? So I definitely know the most about the American situation. Yes, extremely intense backups, upgrades were made to every nuclear plant. So um, I'll probably be able to come back maybe tomorrow with much more specific details on what was done to Khmelnytsky or Arivna or South Ukraine or Zaporizhia plant. Those are the four plants that are all using uh, one of two different sizes of Soviet than Russian VVER, VVER reactors that is the same type of reactor as the pressurized water reactor in um, it's like two thirds of American reactors are PWR type, which is our word for what in Russia is the VVER type. That type of reactor took over uh, all new reactors after the, the damage at Chernobyl the Soviet Union stopped building the Chernobyl type the of reactor yeah. right, and just built the PWRs. So I will need to get back to you on the specific changes made to those units. The key, the really big thing that matters to me in this story, and I know it matters to the, the folks on the ground, is just being in a state of emergency readiness expecting the grid to need to turn off. It means they've got at this point uh, what, 24? We're going to be going on 36 hours of knowledge of needing to be ready for a station blackout. This is really critical time. That's time that uh, that Fukushima just didn't have. 
And this is not going to be a situation where you have absolutely massive total devastation to everything around. There, there's a lot of Russian forces attacking, but that's still, there's still not, you can't quite compare what this overwhelming tsunami and colossal earthquake was compared to even if, if Russia, for reasons that, uh, I don't know, they haven't even attacked the, the very vulnerable grid. They decide to start attacking what, if they capture the country, would be their nuclear plants. Not saying that's going to happen or certainly not that it's good, just that if, if you're an occupying army, what are you doing attacking a nuclear plant? Well, but that's the level of preparation that the plant directors have to have. That's the level of thinking that they have to have. But it's not just that 24 or 36 hours warning that there's an active invasion. Ukraine's been on a war footing for a really long time. So I hope to be able to come back to you with details of what Ukraine has specifically done in response to this war footing since 2014 to secure emergency shutdown and emergency cooling of their plants. God forbid, if necessary. Right. And up until now, all the plants are still in Ukrainians' hands. There's there's not been a like a hostile takeover. Uh, well, okay, so the working plants, obviously not Chernobyl. We covered that. Uh, I We need to check and refresh on Twitter the various accounts following the military's progress coming up from the south. Zaporizhia nuclear plant is the one I've got my eye on. Um, it's, the, it's the plant that's quite close to the Crimean Peninsula, about a four-hour drive north. Uh, last I checked, Russian armies were circling around from Crimea to, to take one of the biggest cities in the southeast of Ukraine, uh, Mariupol. And in that process, they're getting closer and closer to Zaporizhia nuclear plant. That is six uh, Vivers, uh, 1,000, so uh, about a six-gigawatt plant, colossal facility, and uh, we will see in the coming hours how it, whether the Russian armed division, uh, the armor divisions, have advanced as far as Zaporizhia. Do, do you have anything else to add on on this file? Are we getting kind of too far into speculation? Is there more you wanted to to address on the topic of the operating plants? Yeah, let's let's go away from the operating plants in just a few seconds. More broadly, we have nuclear plants as tactical objects in war. We have an occupation of the single most famous, most infamous nuclear site on planet Earth at Chernobyl. Will this lead to more nuclear fear or less nuclear fear? Will this lead to more nuclear plants or fewer nuclear plants? We've already heard today about countries canceling Russian nuclear plant deals. We're talking deals yeah. that are billions of dollars and ha take five, 10 years to develop in some cases, just being canceled overnight for, I, I understand, but uh, is that, that would be potentially the loss of a nuclear plant. Is this new scary world going to be one that reacts away from or towards nuclear energy? I suspect towards because it's clear that there's a reason why a country in as much danger as Ukraine, with as painful a memory and history with nuclear energy as Ukraine, is tonight the most nuclear-dependent country on planet Earth. It's because when all the chips are down, 
you must have the best and the best energy source is nuclear. It's the smallest, it's the most controlled, it's the least waste, it's, uh, it's life when your life's in threat. I mean, I think it begs talking about the other, other nuclear plants in play here outside of the country. Um, you mentioned that there's plants being canceled. I think Finland uh, made that announcement uh, earlier today. Um, I want to pull you over briefly to, uh, to Europe, though. Um, Belgium, Germany. Um, any ideas about or any hints at changes in opinion on, on their phase-outs? Um, given how dependent they are on on gas in terms of making that transition, um, and this new this new dynamic where Russian gas has uh, got a, a pretty big uh, appearances problem, pretty big marketing problem right now. It's still flowing. It's still flowing. It's, it's still being bought. Right. The, <laughs> Germany and Italy are are, uh, are resisting those ultimate sanctions. There's going to be a lot of backseat judging both. Deserved and undeserved. I do not know what I would have done if I were an ambitious German leader with a more or less anti-nuclear population and an easy path to just getting Russian gas. I mean, I would like to think that I would stand up for what's right, but I don't know. It's not clear what Germany is going to do. Belgium, I think Belgium is going to have a really hard time. They were already going to have a hard time getting rid of 50% of their electricity supply in three years, Chris, uh, not just pretending to replace it with renewables like they try to pull off in California or Germany, like not any chance. No one thought there was a chance. The Green Party backed down from protesting gas in order to make sure that natural gas could be infrastructure, billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars worth of subsidies for billions of dollars worth of natural gas infrastructure added to the country that does not produce natural gas in order to get rid of an existing uh, relatively cheap low-carbon energy source, that is just probably not going to be tenable anymore. We're already hearing statements from uh, Tina van der Staten about her uncomfortableness moving forward with this phase-out. Now, she's sometimes phrasing it as, oh, this proves that uranium is bad too because we have to import uranium. I get it. She has no idea what the units are. She doesn't know what the numbers are, the cost. The, it's she's just she's uh, you know green energy minister to to beat all green energy ministers like in like proud of knowing no numbers at all. So she's gonna say, oh well, we have to import our uranium. Okay, it's like single truck per reactor per, per year. That's a joke. That's not. You could stockpile a hundred years if you needed to of uranium fuel within a few years. You can. A single a single hedge fund has started a uranium fuel uh, you know, repository where they're stacking up millions of tons of uranium in a few months. That you just can. It's really tiny. It's really heavy. You just can store it. So that those weird statements aside that uranium doesn't count as as your own energy because you have to import a few bundles of it per year. I think she's going to have a very hard time with her coalition partners. And I think she's going to have a very hard time with the Belgian public. And look, everybody is watching Germany and Italy twist in the wind and say, trying to not disturb the flow of fossil fuels, which uh, is unabated. In fact, natural gas shipments are up today compared really? to yesterday from Russia through Ukraine. Through Ukraine. 
through, through the natural gas pipelines. Yeah, no, Ukraine's not using that gas, at least not directly. They're not using any of that gas. They're just, there's a pipeline going through them and countries to their west are buying the gas, right? right, right. Those contracts are long-term contracts that typically include options or, I mean, automatic increases in flow if the spot price, that is whatever the price is this moment, if that price gets higher, then that can drive up uh, more more flow automatically with the terms of the contract. That's happening. It's very clear that Germany is constrained by needing the fuel. Yeah, yeah. I guess Now, there are other countries that need that fuel a lot that seem less constrained, but they don't matter as much as Germany when it comes to vetoing policy at the EU level. Mm-hmm. Now, look, we, we, could, we could probably stop there on those topics because look, we put out a lot of material over the last year and a half on these subjects specifically. The natural gas issue, we have an episode on that. The Germany-Russia gas geopolitics, that was before the energy crisis started. And we mainly focused on Nord Stream 2, not, not Nord Stream 1 that continues to flow full power right now. But people can make the adjustments and read, <laughs> read the story forward in time themselves. We also have an episode on Russian nuclear. Why, why are almost every, uh, why is it almost every time there's a nuclear deal, it's a Russian plant that's, getting, that's winning that deal and getting sold. So we have an episode on that. I think we've covered the nuclear safety critical issues to the extent we can tonight. And if there are updates that are worth covering, I'm sure we'll be back and I'll get the information for you on what were the post-Fukushima adaptations, if any, to the emergency shutdown capability at the VVR plants, the VVR plants in Ukraine that are online. Well, obviously a very rapidly evolving situation, Mark. Thanks for uh, paying such close attention keeping us updated on Twitter and, and making time for, uh, for us on the decouple podcast. Appreciate you coming on. Sure, Chris.